0: Well, hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and the nightlight is on for Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. This is a very busy news week, and it's about to get even busier, with attorneys for former President Trump going before the Supreme Court, arguing that he should be allowed to appear on the 2024 ballot at all. I'll walk you through the legal proceedings, how to read the opinion when it comes out, and one argument that his legal team already made that may have doomed their arguments before they make it. Plus, there's been a lot of hand-wringing about the future of journalism. I think you should know where things stand and why things are as rough as they are right now. Remember to go to nightlightjoshua.com for the links to the podcast, the Substack, to buy some merch, and to put a few dollars in the tip jar. I saw your comment online, uh, Philip. Hello. Philip writes, another slow news week. What the heck are we going to talk about, LOL? Yeah, it's been a crazy week. Also, I don't understand graphically why your comments keep showing up differently. I show up every week and then it's like, let's put the comment over here and then let's put it right here. And then maybe today, and I'm just clicking and dragging around, maybe we'll make the comment in your face and put it over the entire screen. I don't know why this software does not behave, but it's being weird. Anyway, hello, Philip. Hello to everybody who's watching today. Hope you had a good weekend. Hope your week is off to a Decent start as I fight with the equipment. (laughs) My goodness, hello, Nora. Happy Wednesday to you. Hello, Joseph. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Good to see you. And hello to all of you, whether you're watching on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, or Twitter. Thank you all for being here today. If you are watching over on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, please know that I cannot currently see your comments in the chat. So if you want to join the chat, head over to YouTube. I am Nightlight Joshua on YouTube, and you can be part of the chat with all of the wonderful people who are following over and watching me as I run around and try to get my day together. It has been extremely busy. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the whole future of of journalism, we're not gonna talk about that right off the top, but it is one of the things that definitely affects me and definitely affects our ability to do this thing right here. Yes, Joseph, you are right. Joseph wrote on YouTube, software's gotta keep you on your toes. Done it. Does it though? I mean, I paid for this software. I would like for the software not to keep making me work for it after I've paid for it. That would be nice, I think. But apparently they ain't the way that this goes. So whatever. We'll just we'll just keep on fighting with the software, I suppose. It's a weird thing. I'm so used to being in environments where I need technological proficiency of the systems around me, but I basically focus on the show. When you're bootstrapping it, especially doing something live, which is this kind of insanely audacious thing that I do, you got to be able to do it and then the editorial and then the business side and all of that. So it's been a little crazy. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. I did want to get to some of what's been happening in the last few days. There's a ton going on. First of all, I'm a little out of source talking from day to day and from week to week for a very clear reason. And I know exactly why. I know exactly what's making this so tough, at least in part. Part of what's making this so tough is because 2024 is a presidential election year. And a lot of us who work in the mainstream media or did expected the focus of this year to be the presidential election and the race for the U.S. Senate to for control of the Senate. Depending on who you ask, it stands, the Republican Party stands a good chance of retaking control of the Senate in this election. I've shown you the uh, expect, the predictions from Cook Political Report, who I think are pretty reputable, showing that there are not any races that they believe really lean Democratic in terms of being a pickup from a Republican, at least not this time around. And we figured that there would be a little bit more campaign drama in 2024 than there currently is. Perhaps that presumption now seems foolish and rather short-sighted, like no one, was gonna, no one in the Democratic Party was gonna support a primary challenge of Joe Biden in any full-throated way, that would be weird, even though the Democrats have complained very steadily about the man's age and his supposed mental acuity. And the idea that anyone in the Republican Party was gonna be able to mount an effective challenge against Donald Trump, that may have seemed fanciful now, too, in retrospect. So perhaps we were kind of foolish to presume that this could go any other way than it's going right now. I moved here to Las Vegas partly because I figured, well, okay, Vegas is an interesting place. There's going to be an important primary next year, and it's going to be very, you know, one of the early states that gives us a sense of what voters are feeling and thinking, but no, And I think part of the irritation now is because it's not giving us that early sense. It's not really showing us much about what you think of the two parties. I think we already kind of know that. And if we want to hear what you think of the two parties, you have so many ways on social media to say it at the top of your lungs that the vote doesn't seem to matter as much anymore. Also, don't know if you heard... But Nevada actually has two processes this year. There's the primary, which is the official state process that's overseen by the state. And then there's the Nevada caucuses, which are just for Republican voters. The primaries were yesterday. Not surprisingly, Joe Biden won the primaries in a walk with in some places, I think statewide, it's like 90 something percent of the vote. Not a big shock. Marianne Williamson, who is a speaker and an author, a spiritual uh, thinker, spiritual philosopher, who has run a couple of times for the presidency. She came in at like 3%, 2 or 3% statewide. And Congressman Dean Phillips, who is a Democrat from Minnesota who is challenging Joe Biden, was not on the primary ballot because he filed too late. So he didn't get any votes out of this. So Joe Biden, not surprisingly, is walking out of Nevada, having just come from South Carolina, and he is you know there he is on a glide path to being the nominee not a big shock what was a bit more shocking or actually shocking in a way but also not surprising was the Nevada Republican primary remember republicans decided not to go along with the primary process in Nevada Nevada switched to a primary Nevada's Republican party sued and the court said no Nevada can do what it wants with its political process, but you still have, I mean, you're a political party, you get to set the parameters for how you choose your nominee. And so Republicans said, fine, screw you, we're gonna do caucuses anyway. And furthermore, anyone who takes part in the primary is disqualified from the caucuses and can't get the delegates that will actually count at the convention in Milwaukee this summer. So guess who decided to do the caucuses? Obviously Donald Trump. The process was designed to advantage him And sure enough, he walked away with the caucuses. Nikki Haley did the primary, which I understand in a way, but I also don't understand in a way. If you knew the primary was not gonna get you any delegates and you allegedly supposedly want to win the nomination, why not just put your name in for the caucuses or fight for it? She went with the primary process. Maybe she did fight for it and couldn't make her way through, but she was on the primary ballot. So the expectation that I had naively was that Nikki Haley was going to win the primary and Donald Trump was going to win the caucuses and only Donald Trump's caucus win was going to count. What I did not realize until basically last night when the results started coming in is that in addition to Republican activists and operatives and leaders urging Republican voters to vote for Donald Trump in the caucuses, they also told people that if you should vote in the primary, not to vote for Nikki Haley. So who do you vote for? You vote for none of the above. And that's what happened. In yesterday's primary, the none of these candidates option got more votes than Nikki Haley. So Nikki Haley lost a primary in a race where she was kind of the only candidate. Ooh. (laughs) How does that work? According to... The Nevada Independent, the none of these candidates option, got more than 60% of the vote. Nikki Haley got roughly 33% as of the early returns from Tuesday evening. There were some other candidates who have already since dropped out of the race. Former Vice President Mike Pence got 4.2%. Senator Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina, got 1.3%. Tim Scott is from the same state as Nikki Haley and came out on stage in New Hampshire to endorse Donald Trump while Nikki Haley was still preparing to try to make her way through South Carolina. So it is not looking good for Nikki Haley currently. Here in Clark County, which is the Las Vegas area where I live, Nikki Haley got 30.9% of the vote. The None of these candidates' options, according to the Nevada Independent, got 62.5% of the vote. Now, according to the independent, if the none of these candidates' options does get the most votes, then the person who comes in second is considered the winner. So it's not unusual. When they had the 2014 Democratic primary for governor here in Nevada, voters went for none of these candidates more than anyone else, which I kind of love in a way, because it gives you another way. I bet if, I bet if more states had that option it would change the way that we look at the political process and the candidates that we put forward and the ways in which the candidates try to make their case to you. I would really like to know if people are voting for their chosen candidate or holding their noses and allowing the most popular candidate to go, expressing that they don't like any of the above. Now granted, If you vote none of these candidates, you are kind of throwing your vote away. You're saying, I'm just not going to vote, but I want you to hear that I'm not going to vote. Okay, fine, but at a certain point, you have to kind of like fish or cut bait. You know what I mean? So maybe in a primary, it's useful. In the general, I would not want to vote that way. But I think just as a symbolic measure, it's interesting that that many Republicans were willing to go to the poll and kind of – give Nikki Haley the middle finger in her face at the polls officially. That says something about the hold that Donald Trump continues to hold on the party and kind of the glide path that he's on. But again, even if she had won, it's still symbolic. So it doesn't really matter because the caucus votes are what's going to count, not the primary votes, and it doesn't really matter. And as the Nevada Independent put it, there's just one candidate who is named Ryan Binkley. He's a businessman, a church pastor from Texas, who is coming for Donald Trump in a similar way to, say, Dean Phillips for Joe Biden. They are both very long, long shots in terms of being able to get the nomination. So that is not going to happen. But imagine my surprise. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm in bed, right? I'm in bed last night. I'm relaxing. I'm very calm. It had been a long day. And something in my little news gut, something in my news knower, just kind of my inner cub reporter, just shook me and woke me up. Hey, wake up, Scoops McGee. Check your phone. There's news about to happen. And I grab my, and as I'm reaching for my phone, I hear it. <laughs> And sure, and then another alert, and I, and then there's another one, and then and the phone just wakes up, and I'm like, why? What's going? And all these alerts, and and I finally I look at it, and sure enough, Nikki Haley loses to nobody. <laughs> I had a feeling. I had a feeling because it's been that kind of year. We'll see if it continues to be that kind of year. The big thing that everyone's talking about here, of course, is the Super Bowl. It's in town, and now uh, Media Day is coming on, and, and the Budweiser Clydesdales are coming to town, and everything else. That's much more on people's minds right now. And I get it. I think this year feels a, bit, a little bit like limbo, where people were, we're not really eager to talk about what's going on right now. I think we're all a little weary. And I think the weariness is hitting in the industry right now it's hitting because there is just and i don't know if you feel this way maybe you do if i'm if i'm barking up the wrong tree please let me know in the comment in the chat and i will i will maybe hush but i think because of everything going on at the border with the election in the middle east in ukraine with all of these other international issues plus what's happening here The job market is changing. AI is threatening to kind of turn, you know, the world into a James Cameron movie. And no one quite knows which way is up. I think there's just a weariness in general to deal with any of this. And so to an extent, the fact that it's kind of feels like Trump Biden de facto may not be what a lot of voters want, but it's better than having to make the decision. I think in a way, if this was going to happen on any year, it was going to happen this year because we're a little whipped, we're a little tired. I don't mean whipped as in defeated, I mean whipped as in exhausted. And I don't know if you feel this exhaustion, but I get the sense that a lot of Americans are not in the mood for this right now. We just don't want to do this. We have lives to live, we have other things to deal with today and today. So if ever there was a year for us to have kind of an election where we sort of coast through the election, maybe this year was it. Because there's just so much going on. I feel like people are just sort of, they're checked out. They're just sort of weary. And they they don't even, they don't really want to talk about it. Now, in a way, I put that on us in the press. And I don't pretend to feel like, oh, how dare you not pay more attention. No, no, no. I don't think that's on you. I think that's kind of on us. But I also worry about whether or not that disengagement is going to continue beyond the election, regardless of who wins. I think that there are a lot of Joe Biden supporters who are kind of bracing themselves for the possibility that Donald Trump will be the nominee and the next president, that he'll be inaugurated next year and we will have four more years of Donald Trump. And they're already kind of bracing for that. Or they just have decided they're just going to live their life and whatever happens, happens. And I think there are some Trump supporters who are pute- who are prepared to be furious at Joe Biden winning another term and kind of having to figure out what to do with their rage in a way. And I don't know how that's supposed to work, but I feel like we're already kind of thinking to the worst case scenario or what politically some people think might be the worst case scenario in 2025. And then working backwards from that and going, well, hell, I got to pay bills today. <laughs> I don't feel like dealing with this right now. Maybe that's part of it. I hope that Malays can break somehow, but I don't see how. I think one of the other factors, and I don't want to dig into this too far because it is happening as we speak, is the effort to bring about a ceasefire in Israel. The latest piece of this, and I will show you from Reuters, their latest write-up, the latest piece of this, just before I came on the air today, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, gave a news conference, which I listened to in Hebrew, No, I do not speak Hebrew. I was listening to the English interpreter on the BBC, BBC News. So don't be too impressed with me. But Benjamin Netanyahu basically said that Israel could be months away from winning the war against Hamas in Gaza. He talked about demilitarizing Gaza once this is over and said that we would never militarize the area again and and all that kind of thing. But he basically has been clear that and made clearer again today that the goal of his government is total victory against Hamas, that they are not interested in a ceasefire. There is no mercy for Hamas. They are not going to stand down. They intend to pursue this all the way. They are not going to stop until they get to that point. He said in the press conference, I remember hearing him say this, Reuters quotes him as well, quote, the day after is the day after Hamas, all of Hamas, unquote meaning basically we're gonna keep shooting and shelling and attacking until Hamas is done for. This comes right after and as other world leaders had been trying to negotiate some kind of a deal for a ceasefire to move more hostages. Hamas had said, or a Hamas spokesperson had said, that there were some aspects of that proposal that they would be willing to consider it would be kind of a similar stepwise hostage release. And a spokesperson for Hamas, oh, maybe it's, that's, that could be possible. Netanyahu has made it clear that he is not feeling that, that that is not an option that they are going to keep fighting all the way through. So I think with that in mind and with the way that voters feel about that and how that is just kind of making the world seem like it's generally going crazy and kind of on rails, I'm sort of not surprised that people are, a bit checked out with this election. I, I don't know. It seems quite a bit. Nora, I see your comment on YouTube. Nora writes, there is a bit of disengagement going on, I think. Whether it is fatigue or despair is above my pay grade. And then Joseph, I see your reply to Nora. Joseph wrote, I'd say it's a healthy dose of both. Yeah, I've been, um, I've been keeping an eye on, I, I have a bunch of Google alerts. One of my Google alerts is just for stories, news stories that have the word despair. In them. And there's a lot, particularly stories about what we call deaths of despair, which has to do largely with the drug crisis and the opioid crisis and socioeconomic factors, not so much politics. But yes, there is a general malaise, and I just don't think people want any part of it. I've been thinking about that in terms of this program that you're watching right now and whether or not I need to lighten up a little bit because people are just kind of over it. I'll show you something else that I found interesting. I'm going to go to Facebook because. Of course, my whole life is consumed with trying to get more people to watch this particular program. And so I thought, well, maybe I classify where we are on Facebook a little more differently. Maybe we do that. But if you look over here, it is very clear that our friends over at Meta are not particularly interested in having a lot of of news content on here. Here I am. I show up on my own Facebook page with my own streaming content there. But if you look at shows... It's still kind of a graveyard. Facebook got rid of its originals, so nothing else is there. If you explore, there's not even a topic for anything news adjacent. Like, they don't want it. Instagram threads, they're just not interested. And I understand it in a way. I understand that people feel just kind of burned out. which just enough already. And one of the challenges we're going to have, which I think will get deeper in 2025, is figuring out how to re-engage people who are disengaging from the process because they're disenchanted, and once the election is over, like, okay, can we please get back on with life? I think that's a legitimate concern. I don't believe that that is going to shift unless we find ways to reengage you with the day-to-day of democracy in a way that doesn't feel like a drag all the time. And that's a legitimate concern. How we do that? Good question. I wish I knew. I'm trying to help. I'm doing my part, but... I wish I knew how we do it on a larger level. That's especially because of the ongoing political fight over Donald Trump and his political future. And I want to walk you into that right now. And I will try not to make this too much of a drag. But I do think that there are a few interesting pieces of this that are worth pulling out. It seems like Donald Trump's administration kind of never ended, doesn't it? Like he was a candidate in 2015. That was like almost 10 years ago, eight and a half years ago that he descended that golden escalator at Trump Tower and said that he was gonna do the thing. And he ran. And in 2016, he actually did the thing. He won the race and became the president of the United States. No one perhaps more shocked than him. And so for the last almost nine years going on nine, 10 years, we have had his name in our political conversations almost continuously. That means that there's been a lot of scorched earth, a lot of damage, a lot of issues, potentially a lot of criminality, though nothing has quite stuck yet. But now there is an array of litigation that is being pursued against the former president, Some of it is beginning to come to a head, so I don't think this is going to last through the election. I think some of this might be resolved in the next couple of months. The most recent piece of this was an appeals court ruling from the D.C. Circuit Court. This is the federal appeals court in Washington, D.C., and a three-judge panel ruled on whether or not Donald Trump is immune from criminal prosecution. I want to explain that, but first, let me just clarify something. The Supreme Court is going to hear arguments tomorrow morning. Remember that thing where Jack Smith, who was a special prosecutor, went to the Supreme Court and said, you need to rule on this right now. Are presidents criminally liable for their actions in their presidency? We got to answer this. We have to deal with this right away. This is not that case. The case that's going tomorrow is a different case that's the case that has to do with whether Donald Trump can even be on ballots at all. So I'll get to that in just a second. But first, I want to go through what just happened, and then I'll prep you for what will happen, and then how to make sense of it going forward. So yesterday's ruling. I like the way that this piece from The Conversation deals with it. The Conversation is a website that has newsy articles written by professors and academics and scholars who kind of give context for what happened. I like what they do. So Ruling came out just yesterday, 57-page opinion from this federal appeals court that basically shot down all of Trump's attorney's arguments for why the former president should not be able to be prosecuted criminally. You may remember that during the arguments, there was a clip of tape that came out. I don't think I played it on this show, but there was a clip of tape that came out where one of the judges asked an attorney for the former president if you sent SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival, is that cool? Can he be prosecuted for that? And the attorney was like, if he's impeached and convicted for it, sure. The court rejected that argument very, very, very strongly. According to The Hill, a spokesperson for Donald Trump responded by saying, quote, President Trump respectfully disagrees with the D.C. Circuit's decision and will appeal it in order to safeguard the presidency and the Constitution. Also said the decision, quote, threatens the bedrock of our republic, unquote. I think that's going to come back to bite them. And I think based on some of the previous legal arguments that have been made, that's going to come back to bite them fairly soon. I'll show you one in particular in just a minute. The whole issue behind this is that Presidents are treated like police officers in a way. You need to have a certain amount, at least this is what the law and the courts have upheld, you need to have a certain amount of legal flexibility, a little bit of leeway that allows people to do their job without being so afraid of litigation for any mistake that they can't function. To an extent, I understand that. I have law enforcement in my family. I understand you have to make split-second decisions. No one knows what a police officer should do in a certain situation, sometimes, until the situation occurs. Same thing with the presidency. At least that's the legal argument. So the argument that attorneys for the former president have made is rather similar, that there are certain checks and balances that the founders intended But one of them was to indemnify presidents from a significant amount of liability as a function of just being the president, that they are vested with enormous immunity. That's the nature of what's being figured out. But the appeals court in D.C. rejected that. And it's worth noting, by the way, that it was not all Democratic appointees. Two of the appointees are Democrats. One is a Republican. And these are assigned at random. Cases are kind of assigned to these appeals courts by drawing names out of a hat or something like that. But basically, the appeals court said that that does not make sense. The court said that these claims of what they called unbounded authority to commit crimes would, quote, collapse our system of separated powers, unquote. And to put even more of a point on it, they said, quote, President Trump has become citizen Trump, unquote. Meaning that he would have no more immunity from liability than you would have or I would have if we were in a similar situation. That is the core of what Donald Trump's attorneys are arguing against. That something about him having been president means that he always has some of the residue of his presidency about him for the rest of his life. Now, whether or not that makes sense to you, we'll see. But the court, at least so far, has said that that does not make any sense. Beyond that, there's also this Supreme Court case tomorrow that the Supreme Court is going to hear tomorrow about whether or not the insurrection provision of the Constitution disqualifies Donald Trump from the ballot. Just to remind you, this has to do with the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which was intended to prevent people who had fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War from holding federal office. It says that no one, quote, shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state, unquote, if you had, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion, unquote, against the federal government. Now, again, this was aimed at people who had fought in the Civil War. The issue came up after January 6th. This probably never would have happened, but for Donald Trump's actions on January 6th, because it began to come up with other people, including Marjorie Taylor Greene. There had been a challenge to her eligibility, but a state administrative law judge agreed that Congresswoman Greene's, quote, heated rhetoric may well have contributed to the environment that ultimately led to, unquote, that attack, but it freed her from being liable for the insurrection, for actually engaging in one. You had a guy named Cooey Griffin in New Mexico who ran for county commissioner back in September 2022. A court ruled that he was not eligible. Why? He was there on January 6th. He was part of the attack. Mr. Griffin was part of a group, a founder of a group called Cowboys for Trump. He got sentenced to two weeks in prison, got convicted on a charge of entering and remaining on restricted grounds. Supreme Court is going to consider whether to review his case, and they're going to consider that next week. Also, you had the case of Congressman Madison Cawthorn, former Republican congressman from Florida. Appeals court let that case go forward, but he'd already kind of failed in the primaries by the time a federal court was going to hear that further. So this isn't just about Donald Trump. This is about an array of people who has made threats against the republic, who were there on January 6th, whose rhetoric may have fomented all of this, is any of them allowed to be a part of the federal government anymore. That's kind of the larger issue. Whether or not it's gonna go his way, we'll see, but I think that there is some previous evidence that has already come out that might kind of ruin their argument, and it's evidence that came from his political team. I wanna get into some of that in just a minute. I also want to help walk you through some of the legality of all this. I know that following these cases can be very, very complicated, and it's not always easy to read the legalese and make sense of it all. I want to walk you through how to read a Supreme Court ruling. It's real simple. It's actually way simpler than you think because some lawyers are dumb and they need help to understand what they're looking at. There's actually kind of a format to it, which as soon as you break it down, like it's it's not that complicated to get into. So I will show you that. I also want to show you a clip from the second impeachment trial. Remember that impeachment trial that happened after Joe Biden had already been seated as the president? It was like the beginning of his administration was the trial. Something that one of Donald Trump's impeachment attorneys said kind of contradicts what he's arguing right now. I'll show you, you can decide for yourself next. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. Good to have you with me today on this Wednesday. Remember, you can go to nightlightjoshua.com to follow the podcast feeds, to find me on Substack. To get a little Nightlight merch, including our Gullible Ain't Sexy t shirts, to put a few dollars in the online tip jar, or just to get in touch with me through the contact form on the website. That's nightlightjoshua.com. Also, please do follow me on YouTube at nightlightjoshua. Be sure to subscribe to the channel, click the notification bell so that you can get a heads up when new videos are dropped. Or if you follow me on Facebook, remember you can also get notifications there when new videos drop. If you just prefer to watch live on Facebook than on YouTube, but YouTube is probably your best bet. So please do follow me over there. It is so weird by the way, just so you know, I've got a little little TV on that that right down there in my in my room where I'm doing this. And it's just so weird kind of looking down at the TV and seeing reporters who are covering the election and they're I recognize it cuz they're in Las Vegas and so I'm like, "Oh, that's that's 8 miles from here." And then I look and like oh, I used to work with you. <laughs> so like just a second ago, Vaughn Hilliard from NBC is doing a hit on MSNBC. And I looked out. I was like, oh, I know you. Eva. And then I see Ed O'Keefe from CBS. I'm like, oh, I know Ed. He used to be on 1A when I was on NPR. So it's weird being on the other side of the looking glass every single day. It feels a little bit strange. Let's talk more about the prosecutions of Donald Trump. Remember, this is the You have two kind of big cases right now that are impending. One is the case about appearing on ballots. The other has to do with criminal liability. Can presidents be held responsible for things that break the law? Part of this has already kind of been dealt with. And that goes to part of the backstory of all this. If you remember, there was a president by the name of Richard Nixon. Maybe you heard of him. He got into some trouble with the public. Don't know if you heard about that. And there was already a ruling, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, which states that presidents can be protected from civil lawsuits for their official acts. Civil lawsuits. This has to do with criminal matters. And part of what Donald Trump's attorneys are trying to argue by extension is that there is a much broader immunity, that the spirit of that speaks to the principle that presidents need to have very broad, vast immunity for the things that they do. The lower court judge in the district court disagreed with that. She said that the former president did not have the, quote, divine right of kings to evade criminal accountability, unquote. That is the logic and the reasoning that this appeals court also kind of agreed with on a number of different levels. One of the quotes that they included had to do with a classic case, Marbury versus Madison, that goes way, way, way back to the beginning of the country. And so the appeals court included a passage from that. It reads apart, quote, No man in this country is so high that he is above the law. No officer of the law may set that law at defiance with impunity. All the officers of the government, from the highest to the lowest, are creatures of the law and are bound to to obey it, unquote. The appeals court also cited a more recent ruling involving Donald Trump with a concurrence written by Brett Kavanaugh, in which he said that that principle, quote, applies, of course, to a president, unquote. So the Supreme Court has already kind of waded into this question. And that was with a previous case involving the Legal latitude that New york's district attorney had to go after donald trump 's financial documents. you may remember that I know all these run together. they all run together, but there was a ruling back in uh, two thousand and twenty before uh, the end of donald trump 's term where Cyrus Vance, who was the district attorney in New York at the time, wanted to go after some of donald trump's financial statements in their investigation of possible criminality. And that's where, if you look at the ruling, Trump versus Vance, in 2020, Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurrent opinion in which he said, in our system of government, as this court has often stated, no one is above the law, that principle applies, of course, to a president, unquote. Now, whether the court will stick to that in their ruling about this matter, we will see. They also could say, yes, the presidents are not above the law, but within this kind of, you know, within these bounds, within this particular framework. So who knows? We'll see what they say. But let me get further into just how to even kind of pick these apart. But there is one piece of this that I think kind of breaks the back of the president's argument, and it's kind of amazing that they're walking into this, I think, face first. Part of one of the rulings, part of the give me just one second, let me just load this up. There we go. So here is the appeals court ruling, the one that just came out that we're talking about now that says, no, you get to, you know, you you're not above criminal liability for the actions that you take. Within this. There's a section of the ruling, let me see if I can find the right page again, here we go, where they talk about previous presidents and their potential liability, refers to President Nixon being pardoned by Gerald Ford. Both presidents, according to the ruling, evidently believed was necessary to avoid Nixon's post-resignation indictment. So there's already some clear understanding that, yeah, there are people who believe you absolutely can be indicted after your presidency is over. If not, why did Gerald Ford pardon Richard Nixon? Before leaving office, I forgot all about this until it was in the appeals court ruling, Bill Clinton, you may remember, after he left office, he agreed to have his law license suspended for five years, and he paid a $25,000 fine in exchange for an independent counsel's agreement not to file criminal charges against him. Again, both in the case of Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton, both of these were meant to prevent criminal prosecution, not civil prosecution, criminal. So the question has already kind of begun to be answered. But then they make another direct citation that is about Donald Trump specifically. The impeachment proceedings, remember the ones that happened just as the Biden administration was beginning, for incitement of insurrection. So we've already kind of covered this ground as a country before, and we did it on the floor of the U.S. Senate. His attorney argued, and this is from the appeals court ruling, that instead of post-presidency impeachment, which was what was happening, the appropriate vehicle for investigation, prosecution, and punishment is the court's. His attorney said the most appropriate place to deal with this is in court. And now his attorney is saying the most appropriate place to deal with this is in Congress. Do you see what I'm saying here? They said, no, 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 don't do it here, do it there. And then when we got there, they're saying, no, 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 you should have done it over here. They're trying to have it both ways. That's why I think this is not going to work. Because the evidence is nakedly there. And I think on its face, there's kind of no way to reconcile those two things. They're trying to have it both ways. They're talking out of both sides of their mouths, and it's obvious. Let me show you the clip of the president's attorney during the impeachment proceedings. This is from C-SPAN, and I adore C-SPAN because it is so easy to search for this stuff. I never want to hear anyone say, oh, it's so impossible to know what government is doing. Shut up. Go to dot This is David Schoen, who was one of the president's attorneys for the impeachment trial in the Senate. He said this on February 9th, 2021, before the impeachment, before the senators who were hearing the impeachment trial. Let me play you a piece of what he said where he gives The exact opposite argument that Donald Trump is giving right now. Here's part of what he said.
1: The weakness of the House managers case is further demonstrated by their reliance on the unproven assertion that if President Trump is not impeached, future officers who are impeached will evade removal by resigning, either before impeachment or Senate trial. For example, they contend, citing various law professors, that, quote, any official who betrayed the public trust and was impeached could avoid accountability simply by resigning one minute before the the, uh, Senate's final conviction vote. This argument is a complete canard. The Constitution expressly provides in Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7, that a convicted party following impeachment shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law, after removal. Clearly, a a former civil officer who's not impeached is subject to the same. We have a judicial process in this country. We have an an investigative process in this country to which no former office holder holder is immune. That's the process that should be running its course. That's the process the Bill of Attainder tells us is the appropriate one for investigation, uh, prosecution, and punishment with all of the attributes that that branch, we're missing it by two articles here, that the Article Three uh, courts provide. They provide that kind of appropriate uh, adjudication. That's accountability. <clears throat> there are appropriate mechanisms in place for full and meaningful accountability, not through the legislature, which does not and cannot offer the safeguards of the judicial system which every private citizen is constitutionally entitled.
0: Did you catch that? Did you catch what he's saying? He's saying, no, 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 this isn't the appropriate place for that. The argument is false. You could always just take him to court. Anyone can be brought into court when they break the law. Donald Trump destroyed the argument that he's making three years before he made it. That's the moment that the argument fell apart. His own attorney in the impeachment, David Schoen, made the case that I believe Jack Smith is making right now, that no one is above the law, and that if you want to put someone in court for committing a crime, anyone can be prosecuted for a crime in the United States. Anyone. David Schoen's point is you can't just evade responsibility by saying, I quit. I quit. I'm not president anymore. Uh... Try Mike Mike Pence. Maybe he'll do it. that That doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. You still have to be held criminally liable. Why? Because Donald Trump's attorneys made that case in the impeachment trial in which he was not convicted. It came down to a vote of 57 to 43, three votes away from being soundly convicted and formally banned from ever running again. Three votes away. That's how close it came. And in that process, one of the pieces of the case that they made was that it can always go to court. And so I think that if you look at that, and in light of what the appeals court said where they cited the same argument I just played you, it's pretty clear, like that is not a good enough argument. And the court has already seen it. So what is the process for moving this forward if the court already knows that his attorneys have shot themselves in the foot three years ago. How does that work? And if you think that the court is just going to, well, that happens somewhere else. I don't know if that's really, that That may not be germane. Let's just deal with everything in front of, me. that ain't how life works. Remember that case where you have... The Trump organization in court in New York where the judge, Judge Arthur and Goran, is trying to figure out how much money to penalize the company. This is not the E. Jean Carroll case. I know there's so many cases. We gotta keep them in line. This is not the E. Jean Carroll case where Donald Trump has been ordered to pay $83.3 million to her most of which is punitive. This is about the dealings of the company and whether or not the company owes money and indeed whether the company is allowed to still be a company in New York anymore, whether Donald Trump is allowed to be a New York businessman anymore. This is that case. Well, now the attorney in that case wants to know whether one of the witnesses lied. It's Alan Weiselberg, who used to be the CFO for the Trump organization. He's already been to prison once, or to jail once, to Rikers Island in New York for misleading the court, and now Judge Arthur N. Goran is asking the attorneys to address claims that Mr. Weiselberg lied, that he perjured himself during this trial. Why is he asking about this as he's preparing to issue a decision? Because the New York Times reported on it. The New York Times reported that Mr. Weisselberg is negotiating a deal with the DA in Manhattan that would make him plead guilty for lying in court. And so now the judge, because he can read and because he gets the New York Times, is like, um, I read this. Did you did you see the – I read the news today. Oh, boy. Can you people explain this to – that's how this works. It's all connected. So the idea that the court would just allow his attorneys to act like that didn't happen, that happened in a previous season of the series, and and those characters are dead now, we killed them off at the end of season three, it doesn't work like that. Whether or not the Supreme Court will consider that a strong enough argument to prevent the president from claiming immunity, we'll see. It could go either way. But the argument is so clear. And if I was a Supreme Court justice, I'd be like, why are we having this conversation? You already said you didn't believe the thing that you now say you believe. What changed? At a certain point, the advice of Mark Twain has to kick in. Mark Twain once said, I don't lie because then I don't have to remember. I think at a certain point, when you double talk, it's going to kick you and then you triple talk, and you quadruple talk, keeping that tangle straight becomes impossible. And if there is any moment at which the towering mendacity of Donald Trump might come into account, it's this. Because there's so much said that needs to now be taken in totality, and this could be the moment when it all falls apart. Will it? Won't it? That's up to the courts. But it's pretty obvious that, like, there's some contradiction and it needs to be answered for. And it will be answered for, I think, I hope. Fingers crossed, we shall see. Let me go back to some of your comments. Tenund also wrote, "'Supreme court cases these days are actually pretty well "'written by all the justices, much clearer, plain, "'and to the point than in the past.'" Holly wrote, "'The culture shifts with each C.J., Chief Justice. "'Roberts leans toward simplicity.'" I hear you on that. I also think that one of the big factors in terms of the way that Supreme Court rulings is written is the late Antonin Scalia. Scalia was a smartass, and he was not shy in his rulings about being a smartass. He would come right at you, and he would just he would fire away. I mean, you can read his ruling or his, uh, his opinion in DC versus Heller, the case that said that all Americans' uh, Second Amendment rights extends to be more broadly than previously interpreted. There were pages and pages, I think it's DC versus Heller, where he kind of let a rip. And I think that with that, it freed some of the justices up from feeling like they had to be very officious and kind of esoteric in the way that they write. If you read further rulings back, they are both Law and philosophy, even just as simply as saying no one is above the law. So, to an extent, yes, rulings have to be written with a measure of simplicity. It's always been there. But I think he kind of did a lot, whether you like him or not, in terms of just changing the tone that can be put in rulings and just kind of not caring what people think of him, for better or for worse. In terms of the Political coverage of the day. Nora, I see you wrote, I do think that horse race coverage of the Peel is sort of like horse race coverage of COVID. Longer on heat than on light. Oh, boy. Yeah, heat and light is... My constant bane is trying to figure out how to make coverage more light than heat. I've given my whole spiel on that in the past. I'm not going to bore you with it right now. But uh, we will see. Let me give you a little bit of guidance on how to read one of these opinions. This is another piece from The Conversation. Um, And again, I, I, I think a lot of you may already know some of these things, but for those who don't, I think it's great that people are trying to empower themselves more in how they watch government in how they scrutinize what elected officials do and how they understand what the law says for themselves. Do your own research, everyone is saying that. I think that's great. How do you do it? I think we need more people who just say, okay, look, this is where you find it, this is what you're looking for, this is what this means. And it's not that complicated. But it does help to have someone walk you through it. So, let me walk you through it. This is an article from The Conversation called How to Read a Supreme Court Case, 10 Tips for Non-Lawyers. Oddly enough, the article doesn't have 10 bullet points in it, so I guess we could just kind of count along and see if they add up to 10, but never mind. The, the information is still good. First of all, where do you find the case? Supreme Court cases are at supremecourt.gov. There it is. Boop, supremecourt.gov. You can find, right up here, opinions in the menu bar at the very top, opinions, First option says opinions of the court. Click that, and it will bring you to a list of every ruling that has come out. So far, this term, the only ruling that the court has released is Ashes and Hotels LLC versus Lawfer, But that's this term. You can also go back to previous terms of the court, and it will have a list of all of the different cases. Biden versus Nebraska, Groff versus DeJoy, Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard College. That was the case that had to do with affirmative action in college admissions. 303 Creative LLC versus Elenus. that's the case that had to do with the uh, web designer in Colorado who sued on the off chance that a same-sex couple might ask for her services designing for their wedding. So all of the opinions are here, and all you gotta do, click it, the opinion comes up as a PDF, it's pretty simple. And then you get the whole document. Now, how do you know where in this document to go. So first you find it there. You know where to get it. Another site that is also very good for searching for web cases that I actually think in some ways is even more useful is a site called scotusblog.com. SCOTUSblog is a website that covers the Supreme Court, and they include previews of cases, like the one that I just looked through for this insurrection case about the 14th Amendment, whether he can be kept off of the Colorado ballot, but they also collect a number of other articles about various perspectives on the law, they have you know, the calendar of the Supreme Court, and so on. And you also can look in the top, there's a menu item that says cases, and you can look at the various cases, and it will list all the different cases that are coming before the court, click there, and it will show you the docket number, which is the official kind of the, the serial number, if you will, For that case, the opinion below, which means this came through the federal court system, what opinions preceded the Supreme Court case. It'll show you when the case was argued before the court, in this case, October 4th, 2023. Once the opinion is released, it'll put that up there, what the vote was. In this case, it was a nine to nothing ruling. Who wrote the opinion? In this case, it was Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And then it'll explain everything else. It'll have all the SCOTUS blog coverage. It'll have all the various documents starting with the first one, the writ of certiorari. That's basically the request that says, hey, Supreme Court, we think you should hear our case. And then further down, all the additional filings that are part of that case, color-coded, and then ultimately the judgment at the bottom. There's the judgment. And then if you go further, and it's like a one-sheet of like here's what's gonna happen, and then further up, you can read the opinion. So I think SCOTUS blog is actually a better place to go. If you're kind of wondering, like, what's the backstory of this? You could use a bit more of the context. SCOTUS blog is a better case place to go. So, how do you read the case? First of all, at the top of the case, it starts with a summary called a syllabus. The syllabus is basically kind of the broad outline of the case and the outcome of the case. But that's not really the ruling ruling that you're looking for that explains what the case is about. The next part is called opinion of the court. That's the court's official decision. It'll begin with a line that says, Justice Joshua Johnson, or whomever, delivered the opinion of the court. And that's the person who wrote what you're about to read. Further down, there's a section that you might see in some opinions called either a concurrence or a dissent. A concurrence basically means, yeah, I agree with the ruling, with the opinion of the court, but I see it a different way. My rationale is different. I don't come to the conclusion a different way. You might also see a dissent. A dissent means I disagree with the ruling of the court, and here's why. Neither concurrences nor dissents have the force of law. Bear that in mind. Only the opinion is law, but dissents and concurrences still have meaning. In Dobbs versus Jackson, the case about Roe versus Wade, where Roe versus Wade was struck down, Justice Thomas wrote, maybe it's time to consider other laws on the same basis, like, I don't know, Obergefell versus Hodges, which preserves same sex marriage rights, or Lawrence versus Texas, which keeps the courts out of the bedrooms of same sex couples. Maybe we should talk about that too. Does that mean that those cases are going to be brought? Probably sooner or later. That train is never late. But Justice Thomas's concurrence, did not shoot down Obergefell or Lawrence. It just kind of gave a bit of legal rationale that if you agree with him, you might look at it and go, oh, we might have a case. Let's start working on that. That's why that's powerful. So concurrences and dissents are still worth reading. They're about the thinking of the justices. They can kind of telegraph what the court is is thinking based on the members. So how do you read it? Four parts. The facts, the issue, the holding, and the reasoning. This is pretty straightforward. Facts. Who's suing whom about what and why? On this date, so-and-so did this thing. And then this person brought this case. The lower court ruled so-and-so. And then they brought that to the appeals court, which ruled so on. It's right at the very beginning of the opinion. Sometimes it's part of the syllabus. It's at the beginning of the opinion. Then there's the issue. That's where the court says, what's the constitutional question we're supposed to answer? Remember, the Supreme Court just deals with constitutional questions. So, the issue before us is, the question before us is, we consider the issue of, that's basically how you know what they're thinking about. This is important because they may not even be thinking about whether someone is guilty or innocent, but rather the larger question, overarching their guilt or innocence. So that's the question. What's the answer? That's what's called the holding. The court holds as follows. That's where they give their answer that is used for precedent for other courts. It's usually much later, and it'll say something like, therefore, we conclude, or we find so-and-so, or we hold so-and-so. And then the reasoning. That's basically the bulk of the opinion, where they lay out what happened and why they feel this way and how it connects to other Supreme Court cases or the constitutional text or other sometimes even other appeals court cases or changes in the law and it's how they break down why they think what they think now here's the the key here's the tip i think in terms of reading through these cases when you look at a court case let's take even this one from am i looking at the right one yes 303 creative versus elanis when i look at a supreme court case and i remember when the obergefell versus hodge's ruling came out about same-sex marriage. I was working that day at KQED, I was anchoring, or hosting, and the ruling came down and we had to do it like that fast for breaking news. The rulings are very often structured the same way. So, the syllabus, see, right here at the top? So this is the quick summary, the syllabus. And it breaks down some of the, the details and okay, this is what it is, and for the district court, she said this, the appeals court, she said that. I look for a few things that make it seem like I can speed read. Skip the syllabus. Don't start there. Scroll down, past the syllabus, to the opinion of the court. Skip it. Reason being, you're gonna go to the opinion and then scroll back up, past all of these footnotes, up, 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 to the end of the syllabus. You don't need to read the whole thing to understand what's been written. Generally, the end of each section will summarize what you need to know, generally. If there are multiple legal questions, sometimes the end of a section just summarizes that section. So you have to read a little more carefully, but with the syllabus in particular, just skip to the end. Read the ending. And in this case, it's straightforward. It says reversed, which means they disagree with the court before them. If they had agreed, it would have said affirmed. But in this case, it says reversed. It also tells you who delivered the opinion. Neil Gorsuch wrote this one. Justices Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined that opinion, meaning they agree. Sonia Sotomayor filed a dissent. Kagan and Jackson joined her dissent, meaning they disagree with the opinion of the court. This is the fastest, easiest way to understand a Supreme Court opinion. Start with the syllabus, skip to the end, and then work backwards. Don't start at the beginning. That is the very hardest way to read a Supreme Court ruling. And this last paragraph, the First Amendment's protections belong to all, not just to speakers whose motives the government finds worthy. Boop, there's your answer. That's the first sentence of the last paragraph of the syllabus. Then you read a little further, the opinion of the court. Let me make this page a little larger. There we go. The opinion of the court. God, they really did it with the footnotes in here. I I guess they're going for extra credit. The opinion of the court. Too many footnotes, but that's okay. End of the first section. The question we face is whether that course violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. There you go. That's the issue. That's the whole issue right there. See, it's not that hard if you know where to look. And once you know where to look, just skip ahead. Skip. Skip ahead. All the way down. I'm going to start at the end. Oh, jump to Sonia Sotomayor's dissent. So now I'm going to back up. The end of the opinion of the court. Scroll down a little further. This way that it's laid out is a little weird because it doesn't start the dissent on a new page. That's a little screwy. But down at the very end, the First Amendment envisions the United States as a rich and complex place where all persons are free to think and speak as they wish, not as the government demands. Because Colorado seeks to deny that promise, the judgment is reversed. Boom. There's your answer, you now look like a legal scholar. Congratulations, here's your JD degree. See how easy it is to read these? Don't start from the beginning, go to the end. What about the dissent? Scroll on down, dissenting, skip ahead, skip ahead. Doesn't mean you shouldn't go back and read the rest, but just for a quick understanding, if you're trying to be part of a conversation or win a few beers at the bar, this is how you do it. You do it quickly. And at the end, she makes it very clear because they like to end on a punching line. The unattractive lesson of the majority opinion is this. What's mine is mine, and what's yours is yours. The lesson of the history of public accommodations laws is altogether different. It is that in a free and democratic society, there can be no social castes, and for that to be true, it must be true in the public market. For the promise of freedom is an empty one. If the government is powerless to assure that a dollar in the hands of one person will purchase the same thing as a dollar in the hands of another, because the court today retreats from that promise, I dissent. There's the answer. So if you find yourself when the ruling comes out and you're trying to make sense of it and you're on social media and people are saying all kinds of outlandish things about what happened and you're like, whoa, 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 wait, what did they actually say? This is how you read it. Find the opinion, read read it backwards. Read it from the end up. Start with the last paragraph and then work your way backwards. Start with the syllabus, read the last paragraph of that, the last paragraph of the opinion and then the last paragraphs of any dissents or concurrences, and then work your way down. And watch for sections in the document. Don't start at the beginning. I say the same thing about reading Supreme Court opinions that I would say if you're reading the Bible for the first time. Don't start with the book of Genesis. If you start at Genesis, you will get lost. <laughs> Plus, Genesis is not what Christianity is about. The Gospels are what, the, are what the, the following of the teachings of Jesus Christ are about because Jesus isn't in the Old Testament. He's in the New Testament. So if you start from the beginning and think, okay, let me get the whole story, it's too much. Star Wars didn't start at the beginning. Don't read a Supreme Court opinion from the beginning. You will get utterly, utterly lost. And if you start within it and know where to pluck meaning out, you'll be able to fact check for people way faster, especially because when this ruling comes out, we're going to rely on you. You know, We're gonna need you to be among the people who's able to go, no, 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 that's not actually what it says. It actually says such and such. And when you're able to go and pull a clip out of the actual ruling and go, boop, there you go, that's what it actually said, that's gonna go a very long way toward being able to help the people that you know just sort of breathe in a moment where everything seems absolutely insane. I worry so much about our capacity to move beyond some of the insanity of our current political landscape, but this is a piece of it. Doesn't mean you got to agree with it, but you at least ought to be able to understand it. And now I hope you will be among the people who are able to be a resource for others. When they go, I'm so mad about that, I can't, but and their head is exploding. You can go, what did you hear? Well, I heard that the Supreme Court said that, and go, I don't think that's what it actually said. How do you know? <laughs> Excuse me just one second. Boop. Read it backwards. There it is. Drop it right out and you will look like a genius. Well, you're already a genius. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't hang out with you. I only hang out with, you know that, right? You know I only, like that's why you're watching right now. That's why I allow you to be a part of this program is because you are brilliant and I don't, I don't consort with other such people. It's just, just a waste of my time. That's why you're here. When we come back, I wanna talk a little bit more about DEI, got some comments in response to my piece on ending DEI, how to end DEI forever. We talked about it on the program. I read through my piece that is on nightlightshow.com, got some comments when the video of that dropped this week, dropped on Monday. A lot of people are really facing the wrong way, I think, when it comes to just the framing of this issue. And I think that's what's getting in the way. And why some folks are actually making this debate harder to have. Because they either don't really care about fighting racism and anti-Semitism and sexism and other isms. They care about politicizing that fight in ways that kind of keep people stuck and keep people getting hurt. Or they've got some very, shall we say, questionable views about what racism actually even is. So we'll get to that in just a minute. And then after that, we will dive into the future of my fair profession. Oh, poor journalism, how beleaguered ye be these days. We'll get to all of that in just a minute. Welcome back. Appreciate you sticking around as we move on to the next thing. Let me just get to a couple of your comments real quickly before we keep going. Holly, I see you wrote with regards to the fraud trial. Holly writes, I feel like regardless of the outcome of the fraud trial, on March 20th, they transfer everything to a Wyoming shell corporation and name Tall Kid as CEO. He'll be 18 that day. I read your comment, Holly, and was like, who? Who's tall kid? And then I realized who you were talking about. Baron. Baron Trump. I just looked. I didn't realize he's actually 17 now. His 18th birthday is on March 20th. Mine is March 22nd. So we're both on that, I guess, Pisces Aries cusp. Make of that what you will. Also, I didn't realize Baron Trump is like hella tall. He's six foot seven. He's really tall and is the spitting image of his father. I don't know how he feels about that, considering everything going on with his dad. But I guess that's I guess that's possible. The question is whether or not that would indemnify them, free them up. It might, but they'd still be subject to federal law in Wyoming or or anywhere else. It was also one of the states that I considered starting my company in. When when you start an LLC, you can start it in a number of – you can kind of start it in any state you want. And so the three states where a lot of startups file their articles of incorporation are Wyoming, Delaware, and Nevada. Delaware is more for companies that are eventually going to be publicly traded. My, that's not my way. And so it kind of left Wyoming and Nevada, and eventually I went with Nevada, partly because I wanted to be able to live where the company is filed so that if something happened with, like, a legal document or I got a subpoena or whatever, God forbid, I would actually be able to handle it in person without upending my life. So God forbid I incorporate in Wyoming— someone sues and i have to keep flying between here and you know Cheyenne or Casper and and you know ups, upend my life to try to keep tabs on a on a lawsuit i was like no let's just let's let's do it in town so i don't even know if going to wyoming would would make the difference maybe it would but who knows uh <laughs> 10 under i see you being a smart aleck you didn't want to live in cheyenne joshua amazingly no i'm sure wyoming is a gorgeous state. I'm sure that the mountains and the snowfall and the just the vast vistas and wide open spaces are lovely. But I get cold in 40 degree weather, so I do not feel like turning into a little chocolate popsicle in Wyoming. Also, I don't know how far Wyoming has come since Matthew Shepard died. So I'm not really eager to be there. Um, I'm sure it is lovely. I'm sure eventually I will make my way through that state and I will be uh, breathtaking by what I see, but not today. Uh, Mercedes Pujol Garcia, I see you on YouTube. I appreciate that. Mercedes writes, thank you for giving us the resources to be able to reach our own conclusion rather than relying always on the repetitive media opinions. You are very welcome. And that's exactly why I wanted to do it. I get a little bit bored with some of the coverage sometimes. And so I'm trying to try to change it from both ends to kind of empower you to be able to understand what the reporting is for yourself and also to give an alternative to sort of the echo chamber. You know, I I just, I don't see the value of it at this point. It certainly isn't making the kind of difference in the world that I would like to see, but you're welcome. You are very welcome. I'll get to that in just a minute in terms of the future of the media, which we'll talk about in just a minute. First, I want to address some of the the comments to my piece on DEI. A few weeks ago, you may remember, I released a piece on nightlightshow.com about the future of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. This has been a fight ever since the controversy over Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, Penn's former president, Liz McGill, and MIT's president, Sally Kornbluth. The three of them testified before a U.S. House committee back in December about accusations of anti-Semitism on college campuses and claims that universities, particularly elite schools, were not doing enough to protect students from anti-Semitism. Their testimony went very badly. It went very, very badly. It culminated with Claudine Gay of Harvard and Liz McGill of Penn resigning. Claudine Gay's resignation was also colored by accusations that were brought up by conservative journalist and activist Christopher Rufo that she had plagiarized parts of some of her previous academic work. Professor Gay, who was a Harvard professor before she was president and is still a professor now, went back to faculty, conceded that those claims had some merit and that those works needed to be revised and corrected, and that is happening now. No one has ever accused Claudine Gay, to my knowledge, of flat-out stealing their work which is a whole other level of an accusation. It seems mostly to involve things like citations, and there are ongoing efforts to try to go after academics and elite institutions over plagiarism. But all of that is a side issue compared to the fact that Jewish kids don't feel safe at college. Please stay focused on that as we go forward with all of this. There are lots of people who are trying to turn this into a larger polemic against elite institutions, liberal education, and that's capital L and lowercase L liberal, whether you are politically liberal or just intellectually liberal. And this has been co-opted into a larger, long-running fight about the nature of higher education. Whether you believe that you wanna go to a college that leans more to the political right or left is entirely your business. You should be able to make that choice. You should not be able to derail the effort to protect Jewish students on campus for the sake of your political games. Enough of that. So I wanted to get in on this and say, okay, if you're serious about this, if you really mean what you say, if you really mean that DEI needs to end, how would you do it? Let's just, because I am an intellectually lowercase L liberal kind of person, I'm not afraid to explore these different issues. How would you do it? Theoretically. No idea is perfect, every idea can improve. What would you do, what would it take to actually end DEI programs forever? As you can see, I cited one of the comments that I got on Instagram. We talked about this a while ago that said, why don't everyone just quit talking about it all the time? Damn, it happened, what, 200 years ago? Let the past stay the past. And I blacked out the person's screen name and picture for their own sake. I made the case that DEI programs And indeed, our conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion in any form, whether we call it DEI, are connected to legacies of racism and intolerance and bigotry and dehumanization whose stories have been passed on through generations. Those of us who grew up hearing those stories and who have gone on to do well for ourselves carry a sense of responsibility to make good on the legacies that we have been bequeathed. Generations who came before us poured responsibility into us and imbued us with their hopes for all of the social changes that they could not make. So now it's up to us to try to make that difference. And if you want to understand why DEI efforts, or whatever you want to call them, are so important, especially in the month of February, you have to understand that legacy. You have to understand we can't stop pursuing it because we're haunted by the ghosts of all of these stories that have been told to us forever, since we were old enough to know what it is to be black. Blackness is defined not just by our struggles, but our struggles are part of that definition. They're a significant variable in that. And to say, oh, why can't we stop talking about it? It's because we are still hearing those stories in our hearts, and you're asking us to abandon something that is basal, that is foundational to our sense of who we are, we would love to stop talking about it. Believe me, I would love to never have to have another conversation about racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism, or any other such social ills ever again. I would love for us to stop this conversation, but we can't because we're not done with the work. And so my contentions were these. Number one, and I put this in the piece, I laid out what people should do. I said, first of all, we need to have some apples-to-apples apples conversations. We need to start by telling our stories to one another about the context we bring to this. Bill Ackman, who was one of the people who pushed very, very hard for Claudine Gay to not be president of Harvard, said himself in a CNBC interview that he wasn't paying attention to issues of anti-Semitism, even though his late father, God rest his soul, had been pushing him to do more for other Jewish people. That he himself, Bill Ackman, had not been thinking about it until Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, and then all of a sudden it clicked for him that anti-Semitism is still a thing. First of all, who the hell is that myopic? But glad you finally clued into what everyone else understood. And secondly, that is incredibly useful context to have. Amazingly useful. You should be able to explain, well, this is how I came to this issue. That's great. That means if somebody else has a different view, you now know, oh, we're not having an apples to apples conversation. Let's start over. First thing to do is tell your story so that everyone understands where you're coming from. I'm a firm believer, when in doubt, tell your story. Secondly, Let's confirm that we're all saying the same thing by these terms, diversity, equity, inclusion. What is equity? What does equity mean to you? Inclusion, how do we know if inclusion has been achieved? Would we know these things if they hit us in the head? Maybe, maybe not. So one of the ways to advance this conversation, if in fact you want to advance it and not just kind of stay in a rabbit hole, is to make sure we're having an apples to apples conversation on the terminology that we're using. I gave my example. Diversity is just variety. Means there's all kinds of people there. Equity is accountability. That we note that the people are being treated in an equitable manner. Inclusion is community. And I think you need all three to have a sense of belonging and more importantly, a sense of security. I also noted a piece by a disability advocate by the name of Jamie Shields. And the link to this graphic is in the piece at nightlightshow.com. But Jamie Shield says, equality is everyone getting a pair of shoes. Diversity is everyone wearing a different type of shoe. Equity is everyone getting a pair of shoes that fits. And then he includes accessibility, having shoes or alternatives that feel comfortable. Inclusion, feeling respected and valued whether you're wearing shoes or not. And then belonging, showing up with or without shoes and without fear of judgment. That's one way to look at it. It's not just that everyone gets a pair of shoes. Do they fit? Do they protect your feet? Because your feet are different than mine. And kind I respect the fact that you need a pair that works for you, just like I need a pair that works for me? And then the third thing I would suggest, the not-so-secret secret to eradicate DEI, solve the damn problem. If you want to make issues of diversity go away, deal with the issues. If you want to fight anti-Semitism on college campuses, you got to do what it takes to get it fought. But you can't let the politics get in the way. You can't let the terminology get in the way. At a certain point, you just got to do the damn job. Just do it. Just do it. And that requires people being willing to acknowledge that their personal politics can get in the way, that their personal views have gotten in the way, and that maybe everyone needs to take, take a step back from just attacking everybody and spend that next day just working together somehow. Every day we spend stuck in this cycle of attacking one another is a day wasted. It's another day where, you know, your f- annual celebrations of Black History Month have to be a little bit more tense because there are some people who really want to talk about the struggle and the situation of our people. And then you have some people who are really just trying to talk about the contributions of African Americans to the American diaspora. And it, it's you were talking past one another. And it just gets... Very silly. I will joke with my guy who is white sometimes about like February coming along and how every black person around him is going to be like, yeah, we've been waiting for this all year. Welcome, honky. Sit down. It's time for Black History Month. Lesson number one, Africa. Like that's that's kind of the feel sometimes because people, I, I know, like sometimes when these heritage months come around, it can be met with a little bit of dread because there are very uncomfortable things to talk about. It doesn't have to be that way if we start by just being honest with one another about where we come to this issue from. How did you get to this conversation? And then once we do that, everyone sees one another in a whole different way. That was the idea behind my essay, and I still stand by those ideas. I do appreciate some of the folks who shared their perspectives on this, particularly some strong contrasting views. Some of you have chimed in, I appreciate that. There are a few of the more recent comments, I haven't responded to them yet, that I did want to get to, but I figured let's just do them here. Um, And and I can knock those out and I don't have to worry about them anymore. I'll show you a bit of my screen. This is in the internal page that YouTube creators use. It's called YouTube Studio. And part of it is just to show you comments that you haven't responded to or anything that's been held for review because uh, YouTube's automatic content moderation deems it inappropriate. Nothing inappropriate so far, although I haven't checked in the last few seconds. But I did want to respond to a couple of the comments that that came in that were rather critical. And I'm not knocking these people for critiquing what I had to say, but I think it bears some response. Russell Timmerman3771 wrote, everyone has a legacy of oppression. My Chinese son works in construction. He suffers racial slurs on the daily. His racial inheritance includes 100 years of colonial oppression. They call it the 100 years of humiliation. Yet when he goes to apply to university, he's actively discriminated against because of his race. DEI is racist. The idea of fighting racism with more racism is absurd and evil. Russell, I appreciate you writing. I hate the fact that your son has to deal with outright racism and racial slurs on his job. I would hope that there's someone that he could talk to or report it to who would have some pull or some power to prevent that. But that's, that should not be. First off, off the top, that's not okay. That is inappropriate. And I think you and I are agreed that that should never be the legacy of anyone in this country, first off. I would want to know more about what you mean by actively discriminated against. That was one of the points that was brought up in the case brought against Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill about affirmative action programs. And I, I wonder how we have that conversation and still let colleges be a meritocracy. If we know that students of certain cultural backgrounds tend to do better academically because of legacy issues of race, that black students, for example, tend to do worse than white students on a number of different metrics, not only because of legacies of race, but also because of structural issues with standardized testing and access to tutoring and even just nutrition that keeps them from getting hungry in the middle of the school day. If we can discuss those things, then we also have to find a way to discuss that certain demographics of students don't struggle academically as much. White and Asian students tend not to have some of those same legacy issues as black and hispanic students do. That is a fact. Is it unfortunate? Of course it is. It's terrible. But it is a fact that certain students are affected by different factors. So if we're talking about a pure meritocracy, that complicates things. To be actively discriminated against because of your race, I guess I would want to hear more about why you see that, like what the discrimination was, maybe that's a story you can tell and I'd be willing to hear it. But in terms of DEI being inherently racist, the idea of fighting racism with more racism, that is a misunderstanding of what racism is. Racism is saying those groups belong at the bottom. It's not saying some groups belong in the forefront for a minute to talk about what it's like to be at the bottom. Just because you elevate the conversations of some doesn't mean that you necessarily relegate the conversations of others. This is, I think, what a lot of people don't understand about talking about race and diversity, is that when we talk, or even any other cultural dividing line, when we talk about sexism and when women and trans people and gender non-conforming people are allowed to share their stories, that doesn't mean that men have been rendered useless. It means that women have never fully been viewed in the depths of their human value. And it's time to have that conversation. Should we have conversations about men's issues too? Absolutely. Does it mean that you can only do one or the other? Not in an era of the internet, we can talk about everything all at once. So everyone gets a chance to speak and eventually everyone needs to hear one another. It's not the same as saying that this group is better. It's saying this group needs some time. It's time for this group to be heard. And those DEI conversations are often met with what others don't quite recognize as their need for spotlight. You don't understand the warm glow of attention until someone else gets some and you start to feel cold or the temperature drops a degree. It's almost like a fish who's pulled out of water for the first time because someone else needs a drink. You realize that you're in the water when suddenly it shifts. And I think that's part of why some people struggle with this conversation, is they're realizing for the first time that there are other groups who need the attention and the validation that they've always taken for granted because they had no need to think about it. Does that make those people racists? No, it just means that they're becoming aware of something that is hard to deal with. Race is hard to deal with. Does that mean we don't deal with it because we don't want you to feel bad? How do you think it would feel actually being in the community of those people who've been oppressed? Way worse. That's why I think a lot of these conversations go sideways, is the moment of realization is not met with an effective conversation that says, hey, talk to me about what you're feeling. Be honest. You don't have to make me feel good. If this hurts, I want to know so we can deal with it. And then make room for people to go, This feels like this, that, or the other. I don't understand. And this doesn't feel, and why are we doing this? And this feels like reverse racism. That needs to be said in a space where it can be met with empathy because that realization for the first time is just a blast of emotion that people don't know how to deal with. But we know the blast comes. And maybe if we were better at dealing with that, it wouldn't feel so much like, you know, DEI is racist. (sighs) Are you sure? Have you seen Roots? Have you watched... Like, even hidden figures. Did you see hidden figures? We need to be clearer on what people are actually bringing to these conversations and find better ways to unpack them. That's why I say, when in doubt, share your story. People need to know what you come into the conversation with, and knowing that might make it easier for people to connect. Code Warrior wrote, The only way to end racism, sexism, et cetera, once and for all is judging people by the content of their character and not looking at the color of their skin. As long as this isn't understood, the hate will continue to exist and just change direction. You don't solve generational trauma by causing new trauma in the other direction. DEI and ESG, those are employee affinity groups that deal with diverse groups. DEI and ESG don't end racism or break cycles. They just create new ones on the other side and only helps those who want to play us all against each other. Ask yourself, if you truly want to break all cycles or just break your own cycles. Code Warrior, I appreciate you sharing that comment. I think you might actually have a point that DEI programs don't end racism or break cycles. That may be true. They may be an iterative step that doesn't actually make the kind of advancement that we want, and maybe that's why they won't work. I would concede that it is totally possible that these DEI programs by and large are not going to succeed just because of the way that they are conceived. And if you talk to some folks who work in organizations who put a lot of energy into DEI, there may be a lot of them who are like, yeah, we did this thing and it was dumb and it didn't work and everyone just walked away feeling pissed and, and kind of hurt by it and it just it just sort of made things worse made things worse. So, I get that. I think a lot of organizations are well intentioned but they just don't execute it well. So that may be possible. I also hear you that we need to focus more on content of character rather than color of skin. We we love that line from the I have a dream speech for a reason. I think it re- resonates for good reasons. I don't think it is the only way to end that. It's almost like It's almost like you have to look at the problem in the way that the problematic people do to understand why it's problematic. I don't want you to ignore my blackness in accepting me as a person. I want you to accept my blackness as part of me as a person, not apart from me. That's what I think people misunderstand when we talk about viewing people for the content of their character and not just judging them by the color of their skin. I don't want you to judge me for being black, but I also don't want you to ignore the fact that I am black because my blackness is not just a scarlet letter. It's part of the beautiful design that makes me who I am. My color has given me a richness and a flavor and a uniqueness, and a perspective, and a style, and a verve, and a joie de vivre that is unique to people of African descent. And I would not want that part of my uniqueness stripped away from me. And for you to say that you don't want to see my color is to say that you don't want to see me the way that I see myself. And maybe even more to the point, that you cannot love me the way that I love myself. I love my blackness. I take pride in it. I even take pride in the painful parts because now I have a chance to do something about that painful legacy by going forward and by bringing people along with me to redeem the pain of the past. Why wouldn't you wanna be a part of that? That's an opportunity. That's not a threat. That's a gift. We get to go forward into a better, brighter, freer future together. Don't you want that? Or would you rather do what we did back in the way back before we could talk about these things, where we just look at somebody in the attributes that we're already comfortable with instead of accepting the opportunity to advance, to grow, to transcend the past? What would you prefer? That's up to you. I think breaking the cycles affects everyone positively. To your point about breaking all cycles or just breaking your own, that assumes that the cycles don't link. That assumes that the same cycle that allows or that causes women to be relegated to a lower status than men also imprisons men in our capacity to excel, to achieve, to be prosperous by not prospering everyone in our society who can contribute more to the society. Men are harmed by sexism too. Women are harmed most, but men are imprisoned in that small-minded, limited mentality as well. White people are victims of racism too. Not just the people that have been denounced by racism. The racists themselves are limited and ossified in their own hate and dehumanization it's poison on them too. So to assume that the cycles aren't the same, on what do you base that? Do you really think that America is so, if America was actually built of these different cycles, then you could just carve the experience of black America off and white America would be fine because that one cycle would continue. But if it's not the same cycle as what white people go through, then they don't have a problem, do they? They have no reason to be invested at all. You're not suggesting that, are you? We're all much more linked. I love the way that Bayard Rustin put it. Bayard Rustin was the man who helped plan the March on Washington, where Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech. Coleman Domingo has been getting honors for his portrayals of Bayard Rustin in a new movie called Rustin. And in a wonderful twist, Bayard Rustin is a, was a gay man who was actually being played by a gay actor, a black gay actor, which is fantastic. Bayard Rustin once said, we are all one, and if we do not know it, we will learn it the hard way. We are all one, and if we do not know it, we will learn it the hard way. That's the whole point. This web of mutuality, which I believe is a Dr. King quote, but which I will look up right now just to make sure I, yep, network of mutuality. See, we all like to talk about the content of the character, but we don't like to read the rest of the book. Martin Luther King Jr. in his book, Why We Can't Wait, wrote, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly, unquote. So yeah, it's cute to say that, oh, your cycle, my cycle, it's cute that you think that you can escape this. That if I start to sink, that you won't drown too. And conversely, that if I don't reach out my hand to help you, that I could be dragged under the waves myself in ways I cannot yet see, but that will surely hold me to account someday. James Fraley may have (laughs) had one of the sharpest responses. James Fraley commented, you're five minutes into the ramble and have made zero points. And the difference between cancer and racism is that cancer is still a very big problem. Racism was dying until D.I.E., which is a way that some opponents of D.E.I. have flipped the letters around. I'll explain that in a second. Racism was dying until D.I.E. and all the race baiters found they could make money on it. Okay, smart Alec. Let me first explain the cancer remark. I said earlier in the piece, and this is for those of you who may not have seen it earlier, that I kind of tried to respond to the, the pushback to dealing with this issue in general. And one of the things that I wrote early in the piece was, racism, bigotry, and hate are terribly uncomfortable things to talk about. Granted, it's not an argument applied evenly to tough subjects. Imagine the outrage if someone said, Jesus, every day it's like cancer this and cancer that. Can we please not spend every waking minute talking about it? Except the cancer of bigotry is closer to being cured than ever before in American history. And we could be the generation that wipes it out. Ain't that something to shout about? So that's what I wrote in the original piece, and that's why he's referring to cancer versus racism. Okay, so you don't like that I was rambling for five minutes. I tend to ramble. Guilty as charged. As far as the difference between cancer and racism, if you say that I haven't made any points, but you remember that I made the point about cancer and racism... Didn't you just shoot yourself in the foot? You said I haven't made points, but you just criticized one of my points. So then I have made a point, or is that, or is that not? Does that not count as a point? Well, but you you made a counterpoint. So can there be a counterpoint without a point? First beat. You may have wanted to edit this comment before you hit send. Anyway, racism was dying until D.I.E. and all the race baiters found they could make money on it. That goes back to a tweet by Elon Musk, which I will try to follow a post on X that I will try to find very quickly, where he basically said, maybe he wasn't the one that sent the original one, but he was commenting on the whole scandal regarding Boeing and that door that flew off of one of the 737 MAX 9 jets, which we now know, it seems, came from a service facility without the four bolts that it needed to stay on the plane. Crap. Oh, God. We'll talk about that another day. But basically, he argued that DEI programs are making us less safe because there is too much of a focus on... Diversifying workforces and not enough of a focus, in his view, on hiring the right people for the job. That caused some people. Here it is. Let me just find. I'm trying to find the original post. I see it in an NBC News write up in which they quote the post, and I'll use their write up for now. I'm just trying to find it quickly, but I can't find it quickly enough. Where he said, Give me just a minute, just trying to scroll down to grab it. There was this back and forth over these plane crashes. And he wrote, It will take, Elon Musk wrote, It will take an airplane crashing and killing hundreds of people for them to change this crazy policy of DIE, apparently, and intentional, accidental misspelling, don't know. But basically, that's the argument that unless you are more focused on the merit of the people involved as opposed to the race of the people involved that things like this are bound to, bound to happen. That is remarkably insulting in ways that I don't think people who've never been on the receiving end of that will ever fully understand. I alluded to this a little bit in terms of the moment as a little black kid when you realize that people saying, oh my goodness, you speak so well is not a compliment. <laughs> It's actually a very thinly veiled insult. What you're saying is, I'm shocked that you speak so well. I didn't expect you to speak so well. And it's like, bitch, what? (laughs) What do you mean you didn't expect? I'm on the stage. I'm on the damn stage. Why wouldn't I speak? So it's an adjunct to that argument. It's a piece of that in terms of the way that we bring assumptions about other people. And granted, he may have actually misspelled it. He may have just misspelled it and people pounced on it. He, however, has said that he does send his own posts on X. So, and and X also does allow you, with a premium membership, to edit your post. So the fact that he fired away and didn't think to edit that or maybe wasn't paying enough attention, I put that on him. You have to be responsible for what you say. In terms of Mr. Fraley's comment, at James Fraley. The difference between cancer and racism is that cancer is still a very big problem. Actually, that's not the only difference. The other difference between cancer and racism, as we've talked about on this program, we're actually trying to cure cancer. We've made enormous strides and every American considers cancer their problem. That's another difference. I agree with you that cancer and racism are quite different. They're different in some ways that I wish they were much more the same. Thank you for pointing that out. Racism was dying, he writes, until D.I.E. and all the race baiters found they could make money on it. You know who made the most money from racism? Racists, (laughs) they're the ones who keep it going. I would love for us not to make any more hay of racism. It'd be nice if we could. What we have found also, there have been a number of studies that show that organizations that do focus on what we now call DEI, whether they call it that or not, that organizations who do the work of trying to make their institutions more diverse, equitable, inclusive, accessible, to focus on the community of people that they're building and to actively recruit Beyond their blind spots, for example, if your executive ranks are all or mostly white males, to even think about going to organizations that work with women in your industry, people of color in your industry, and saying, hey, we would like you to know that we have jobs available. We're not even looking for you. That the caliber of the candidates you get is stronger and the company performs better generally. Granted, it depends on how a company is managed but that these kinds of efforts to diversify an organization actually do some good. So there is not just prosperity to be found in maintaining old legacy systems. There's also prosperity to be found in breaking them, in transcending them, in disrupting them. And that disruption can often lead to the next frontier of an organization, a company, an industry, a sector, when you're not afraid to look beyond the usual right when you're willing to just cast out for something you're not used to seeing i think one of the best examples of this a constant living example of this netflix netflix's most watched show ever is not in english it didn't come from america you know the most watched show in netflix's history squid game a Korean action dystopian drama about children's games that Americans don't play, (laughs) mostly, some of them anyway. It's not even in English. It's from Korea, from South Korea. But it speaks to things that are very universal and that people feel very deeply, deeply about the capitalist economy of today. How was Netflix gonna be that company unless it said, let's find stories from all over the world and just see what percolates to the top? That's why Netflix is so successful. I mean, before that, it was Bridgerton, which is a fantasy, romantic, serial comic, soap opera, basically, about a pseudo-British aristocracy that is all black and brown. (laughs) And it bears... Very little resemblance to any real British aristocrat in the actuality of it, because they're all black and brown. If you want that, go watch The Crown. How else do you explain that success? But that's the flip side of DEI that I think a lot of people, like this commenter, don't want to deal with. In his defense, though... We don't always do a good job of making it easy for people to see it that way. And I think that's part of the narrative that needs to break. That's part of why I wanted people to read my piece and respond, because I don't believe that the experiences of people of color is all doom and gloom. I have a huge problem with so much of Black History Month and Black Heritage Month being about the struggle of black people. Do we have to talk about that? Hell yes, absolutely. But our stories are much bigger than that. That's why I brought you last week the story of Lanny Smoot, the Walt Disney Imagineer who is about to be inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Lanny Smoot is only the second person from the Walt Disney Company ever to receive that honor. A black inventor. He has more than 100 patents. About 74 of them are just with Disney. The only other person from Disney who's been inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame was Walt Disney for the multiplane camera. He was inducted posthumously after his death. And now, a black inventor from Disney is gonna be in the National Inventors Hall of Fame. That is cool. So I think that if DEI, and James Fraley's comment, at James Fraley's comment, exemplifies this, and in that regard, maybe he's doing us a favor. I think maybe he's doing us a favor in helping us to see that there's opportunity in reframing the discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Maybe there is an opportunity to shake up the discussion and say that the goal is not just to fixate on the problem, but to illuminate the promise and the possibility of a more diverse, equitable, inclusive, and just world it's not just about grievance. It's about greatness. It's not just about wallowing in the past. It's about waking up to the present and wishing for a better future. That's something we can all do together. And I think if we're willing, particularly as communities of color, to balance those conversations, we could get a lot farther a lot faster. It doesn't mean we stop talking about problems. But we also have to talk about the possibility of what a solution could provide to make it easier for people to want to be a part of the conversation, to show up. And then the people who show up need to accept that a table has already been laid out for them. These efforts to destroy DEI feel like saying, I don't like this table, smash. (laughs) And <laughs> you crush the table. Well, now you gotta build and design another table, build another table. You gotta get the people who was at that table that you just broke to show up at this table and say, no, no, not that one. This one. And they're like, well, put the sledgehammer down. Damn it. What the what? You just go smash it again if you don't like it. That just builds distrust. As opposed to saying, you've already set a table. All the people I need to talk to are already here. I'm just gonna sit down and at least tell my story and share what I have. And if that doesn't work, you build something else. But you work your way from where you are with a shared vision of what the future is and don't make it entirely about just beating people up. That is not inspiring and it doesn't work. I do think that some of the advocates of DEI have a lot of work to do in terms of just making the movement palatable to the people who need to be there. What results are you getting for what you've done so far? We don't have time for this to be all about grievance. We don't have time for this to be all about truth-telling and putting people in their places, because that's not effective. It's just not working. And I don't know how much time you think we have before we need to start making things better, but I would like to start today, if that's convenient. And making people defensive and cagey and buttoning up is not going to, solve the problem. Now, granted, some people are just defensive, cagey, and buttoned up, and they're just not going to show up. To hell with them. The people who will, and from my work talking about issues of race and class and culture and diversity all over this country, lots of people would love to have that conversation because I've had it with them in communities all over the country, and not one of them has gone sideways. Lots of people are down for that discussion. But if we're going to do it, we got to do it in a way that people want to show up for. They don't want to show up for this. Should they? Yes. Are they? No. And I think if we're willing to look at the situation and say, okay, what are we dealing with? Who can we reach and who can't we reach? The people we can't reach? Hell with them. Who can we reach? Who is at least open to this? There are paths forward. Maybe it's DEI. Maybe it's not. It's not. It's not but there are better ways to communicate this that make people want to show up. Start by telling your story. People love talking about themselves more than anything else. Everyone's favorite subject is themselves. To borrow and paraphrase a line from Willie Nelson, I am always on my mind. And that, and now I'm going to hear him singing it that way for the rest of my life. I am always on my mind. It's always going to be the, for the rest of my life. But you understand what I'm getting at. Get people to talk about who they are. And that's part of the opportunity in these heritage months is to get everyone to feel like, oh, well, maybe I need to know about AAPI Heritage Month because it connects to me somehow as a black person. Maybe I need to know about LGBTQ Pride Month because it connects to me somehow as a cisgender straight person. Maybe I need to know about this. Where is that bridge? That's the hard part. Step one, just tell me your story. Who are you? Well, I don't have any black heritage. That's okay. I'm just sharing my heritage. I'd like you to hear mine, but maybe I could hear yours too. So, tell me about you. Radically different approach and disarming so that the people who feel that this is just about race baiting and making money, like at James Fraley apparently feels, are thrown off from their default responses. They don't know how to handle it when someone actually invests in them and gives attention to them. Joshua, this is our month. We're supposed to be the ones getting the attention. I know but you get what you give. Life has taught me that over and over and over. I only get what I give. And the more I'm willing to give it to others, the more others are willing to give it back to me. In various ways, over time, the net effect is always more positive. If I model the behavior that I'm looking to get back, it changes everything. Maybe the people who commented on this don't get that. Maybe someday they will. I hope someday they do. If they don't, well, then they're probably just not my audience and that's okay. That's all right too. But I think that there is a chance to have these conversations in a way that connects us and that doesn't pull us apart in a way that actually moves things forward and makes things better. And I don't think that anything that creates that dividing line is going to help. If that means that what we now call DEI has to go, maybe there's a better iteration. Maybe that does go away. And we say, okay, what do we learn from this and how do we move past it? But it's got to be about us together. It's got to be about us together as told through the stories of individual groups. But ultimately, it's still about us together. That's the goal. That's what I think the goal should be. Let me go back through some of your comments and see what I have been missing as I've just been here yakety yak. And I appreciate y'all listening, by the way. This is, it's always a big issue and I try not to make it so vast, but it's, it's, a, it's a big issue. Um, let me get to... Been There Done That Too, hello, I see your comment. I don't know if I've seen you in the chat before, but welcome. Been There Done That Too writes, I think it's being played against each other. Politics have used color to play us all. I do believe there was racism years before this era, but today the political parties use it to win. They know if they divide us, they win, we lose. My family is mixed black, white, and Hispanic. They just keep us all broken. I hear you on that. I think divisiveness is still a very effective forms, form of politics. If anything, what we're seeing now in Congress shows how ineffective divisiveness can be because that idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend is not really working out very well for for Republicans in Congress right now. And we'll talk about that maybe tomorrow. That kind of common enemy intimacy is just not effective. So I don't know if that's the case. But I hear you on that in terms of trying to... to keep people from playing us against one another. That's why I think that giving people more ways to reach out is more effective. That's more effective than anything else. I want to get to Nora. I see your (laughs) comp. I'm sorry. Humanity, first of all, uh, says Squid Game wasn't even that good. Okay, I will leave that. I'm I'm definitely not getting into that debate. Um, I've only seen very little of Squid Game because I get squicked out by like blood and guts very... Easily with movies, um, and I understand it's a rather brutal series. But one of these days, I will watch it through my fingers and be like, "No, tell me when it's getting scary." Does somebody get hit? Oh no, no, no! I don't want to, no blood, no blood, please. Maybe one day I'll watch a little more of it. But Nora writes: the DEI adjacent industry does enforce ideological purity tests and add cludge to the economic market. See gay, Claudine Gay, acting against conservative blacks. See also SPLC, preach the greatness. And then Joanne. Hello, Joanne. Chimed in on YouTube. Love this. Always like to look for the positive in things. I agree with Nora. Preach the greatness. Off to share the clip on my social media. Please do. I appreciate you sharing the clip. And yeah, I just think it's, it, it, it's not inspiring unless we do that. I think that's why people like to quote Dr. King, but they quote the inspirational part. They don't want to quote that other part about the you know, about controversy. I mean, Dr. King said that tension can be a good thing. He said there's a kind of constructive tension that's necessary for growth. No one wants to talk about how much Dr. King liked the idea of tension. He said that America needs to be true to what it said on paper, that when the founding fathers wrote the Declaration of the Constitution, they were writing a promissory note, a check to which all Americans are heir. And we don't like to talk about that because it's not inspiring. But if you start with what's inspiring, you can work forward to the practical. But you got to start with what's inspiring because it gets people in the room. Solange the first. I like. Oh yeah, I like your Todd Rundgren parody in terms of how we always like to talk about ourselves. Hello, it's me. I, th- I thought about me for a long, long time. Yes, indeed, absolutely, uh, for sure. I, I yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. But yeah, it's but it's the truth. We like to hear. I mean, we like to hear ourselves talk. I'm doing. A, a look at what I'm doing right now. I'm, I, feel, I feel very convicted right now. How dare you make me feel ashamed? But it's the truth. It's the truth. And finding ways to get people to tell their stories is kind of cathartic. It makes it okay to just be who you are and come from where you come from and not feel like you're going to be judged the minute you walk in the door. I, Nora, I see what you just posted. Nora wrote, I am in my late 60s and white. When I was a young teen, my grandma said to shop for fashion accessories where the black whores shop. She was right. I guess they had black women walking the host roll back then. She was right, but quoting it has gotten wild reactions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll give you another wild reaction. Mm-hmm. There you go. But I also love the fact that you can share that story because... You're not asking us to agree with what your grandmother said, right? You're saying it just to paint a picture of what life in her world was like. And people can think what they want, but I think just being able to say it and not having someone go, how dare you say such a thing like that, and evict you from the room, is necessary. we got to be able to tell our stories. we got to be able to talk to one another about these things. And I think the more that folks like you, all of you watching, all of you listening, are able to just be, to just sort of let the story be what it is, and then let people's reactions kind of shake out as they see fit, that's positive. That's powerful. And that will make a difference. I believe that will make a difference. Thank you all for sharing your stories on this. It's it's a difficult thing to work our way through. It's a very difficult thing. But I think that people are ready for this conversation in ways like they haven't been ready ever. I think that's a good thing. I think we're gonna be on the vanguard of that kind of generation or the, or the nation that's gonna be able to start walking away from some of these social ills, and that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. I am going to pause here for the day. I do wanna talk to you about the future of journalism. That will come up on tomorrow's program, partly because the story keeps moving. There have been more developments and more developments. And I will bring that to you on tomorrow's show. Also, we'll talk more about the Senate border deal they just voted. It's dead. So we're gonna have to talk a bit more about the future of bipartisanship on this program tomorrow because it is not looking very good. But you know what looks great? You, my friend, you've never been better. I'm delighted to have spent time with you today. Remember to go to nightlightjoshua.com for all the links to stay in touch. Also, do follow the podcast and the YouTube channel. Please write a review of this episode. Let folks know what you thought, whether you liked it or not. But until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thanks for making time for me. And as always, my friends, keep on shining because someone, somewhere needs your light right now.